Part Nine of *The Intrusion of Jimmy* by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *The Intrusion of Jimmy*, Chapter Twenty Five. Explanations. Jimmy, like his lordship, had been trapped at the beginning of the duologue and had not been able to get away till it was nearly over. He had been introduced by Lady Julia to an elderly and adhesive baronet who had recently spent ten days in New York, and escape had not been won without a struggle. The baronet on his return to England had published a book, entitled Modern America and Its People, and it was with regard to the opinions expressed in this volume that he invited Jimmy's views. He had no wish to see the duologue, and it was only after the loss of much precious time that Jimmy was enabled to tear himself away on the plea of having to dress. He cursed the authority on modern America and its people freely as he ran upstairs. While the duologue was in progress, there had been no chance of Sir Thomas taking it into his head to visit his dressing-room. He had been, as his valet detective had observed to Mr. Gaither, too busy jollying along the swells. It would be the work of a few moments only to restore the necklace to its place. But for the tenacity of the elderly baronet, the thing would have been done by this time. Now, however, there was no knowing what might happen. Anybody might come along the passage and see him. He had one point in his favor. There was no likelihood of the jewels being required by their owner till the conclusion of the theatricals. The part that Lady Julia had been persuaded by Charteris to play mercifully contained no scope for the display of gems. Before going down to dinner, Jimmy had locked the necklace in a drawer. It was still there, Spike having been able, apparently, to resist the temptation of recapturing it. Jimmy took it and went into the corridor. He looked up and down. There was nobody about. He shut his door and walked quickly in the direction of the dressing-room. He had provided himself with an electric pocket-torch, equipped with a reflector, which he was in the habit of carrying when on his travels. Once inside, having closed the door, he set this aglow and looked about him. Spike had given him minute directions as to the position of the jewel-box. He found it without difficulty. To his untrained eye it seemed tolerably massive and impregnable, but Spike had evidently known how to open it without much difficulty. The lid was shut, but it came up without an effort when he tried to raise it, and he saw that the lock had been broken. "'Spike's coming on,' he said. He was dangling the necklace over the box, preparatory to dropping it in, when there was a quick rustle at the other side of the room. The curtain was plucked aside and Molly came out. "'Jimmy!' she cried. Jimmy's nerves were always in pretty good order, but at the sight of this apparition he visibly jumped. "'Great Scott!' he said. The curtain again became agitated by some unseen force, violently this time, and from its depths a plaintive voice made itself heard. "'Dash it all!' said the voice. "'I've stuck!' There was another upheaval, and his lordship emerged, his yellow locks ruffled and upstanding, his face crimson. "'Caught my head in a coat or something,' he explained at large. "'Hello, Pitt!' 
Pressed rigidly against the wall, Molly had listened with growing astonishment to the movements on the other side of the curtain. Her mystification deepened every moment. It seemed to her that the room was still in darkness. She could hear the sound of breathing, and then the light of the torch caught her eye. Who could this be, and why had he not switched on the regular room lights? She strained her ears to catch a sound. For a while she heard nothing except the soft breathing. Then came a voice that she knew well, and, abandoning her hiding-place, she came out into the room and found Jimmy standing, with the torch in his hand, over some dark object in the corner of the room. It was a full minute after Jimmy's first exclamation of surprise before either of them spoke again. The light of the torch hurt Molly's eyes. She put up a hand to shade them. It seemed to her that they had been standing like this for years. Jimmy had not moved. There was something in his attitude that filled Molly with a vague fear. In the shadow behind the torch he looked shapeless and inhuman. "'You're hurting my eyes,' she said at last. "'I'm sorry,' said Jimmy. "'I didn't think. Is that better?' He turned the light from her face. Something in his voice, and the apologetic haste with which he moved the torch, seemed to relax the strain of the situation. The feeling of stunned surprise began to leave her. She found herself thinking coherently again. The relief was but momentary. Why was Jimmy in the room at that time? Why had he a torch? What had he been doing? The question shot from her brain like sparks from an anvil. The darkness began to tear at her nerves. She felt along the wall for the switch and flooded the whole room with light. Jimmy laid down the torch and stood for a moment undecided. He had concealed the necklace behind him. Now he brought it forward and dangled it silently before the eyes of Molly and his lordship. Excellent as were his motives for being in that room with the necklace in his hand, he could not help feeling, as he met Molly's startled gaze, quite as guilty as if his intentions had been altogether different. His lordship, having by this time pulled himself together to some extent, was the first to speak. "'I say, you know, what ho?' he observed without emotion. "'What?' Molly drew back. "'Jimmy, you were—' Oh, you can't have been!" "'Looks jolly like it,' said his lordship, judicially. "'I wasn't,' said Jimmy. "'I was putting them back.' "'Putting them back?' "'Pit, old man,' said his lordship solemnly. "'That sounds a bit thin.' "'Dreaver, old man,' said Jimmy. "'I know it does. But it's the truth.' His lordship's manner became kindly. "'Now, look here, Pitt, old son,' he said. "'There's nothing to worry about. We're all pals here. You can pitch it straight to us. We won't give you away. We—' "'Be quiet!' cried Molly. "'Jimmy!' Her voice was strained. She spoke with an effort. She was suffering torments. The words her father had said to her on the terrace were pouring back into her mind. She seemed to hear his voice now, cool and confident, warning her against Jimmy, saying that he was crooked. There was a curious whirring in her head. Everything in the room was growing large and misty. She heard Lord Drever begin to say something that sounded as if someone were speaking at the end of a telephone, 
and then she was aware that Jimmy was holding her in his arms and calling to Lord Drever to bring water. "'When a girl goes like that,' said his lordship with an insufferable air of omniscience, "'you want to cut her.' "'Come along,' said Jimmy. "'Are you going to be a week getting that water?' His lordship proceeded to soak a sponge without further parley, but as he carried his dripping burden across the room, Molly recovered. She tried weakly to free herself. Jimmy helped her to a chair. He had dropped the necklace on the floor, and Lord Drever nearly trod on it. "'What ho!' observed his lordship, picking it up. "'Go easy with the jewelry.' Jimmy was bending over Molly. Neither of them seemed to be aware of his lordship's presence. Spenny was the sort of person whose existence is apt to be forgotten. Jimmy had a flash of intuition. For the first time it had occurred to him that Mr. McKechern might have hinted to Molly something of his own suspicions. "'Molly, dear,' he said, "'it isn't what you think. I can explain everything. Do you feel better now? Can you listen? I can explain everything.' "'Pit, old boy,' protested his lordship, "'you don't understand. We aren't going to give you away. We're all—' Jimmy ignored him. Molly, listen. She sat up. Go on, Jimmy, she said. I wasn't stealing the necklace. I was putting it back. The man who came to the castle with me, Spike Mullins, took it this afternoon and brought it to me. Spike Mullins. Molly remembered the name. He thinks I'm a crook, a sort of raffles. It was my fault. I was a fool. It all began that night in New York, when we met at your house. I had been to the opening performance of a play called Love the Cracksman, one of those burglar plays." "'Jolly good show,' interpolated his lordship, chattily. "'It was at the circle over here. I went twice.' A friend of mine, a man named Mifflin, had been playing the hero in it, and after the show, at the club, he started in talking about the art of burglary. He'd been studying it and I said that anybody could burgle a house, and in another minute it somehow happened that I had made a bet that I would do it that night. Heaven knows whether I really meant to, but that same night this man Mullins broke into my flat, and I caught him. We got into conversation, and I worked off on him a lot of technical stuff I'd heard from this actor friend of mine, and he jumped to the conclusion that I was an expert. And then it suddenly occurred to me that it would be a good joke on Mifflin if I went out with Mullins and did break into a house. I wasn't in the mood to think what a fool I was at the time. Well, anyway, we went out, and, well, that's how it all happened. And then I met Spike in London, down and out, and brought him here." He looked at her anxiously. It did not need his lordship's owlish expression of doubt to tell him how weak his story must sound. He had felt it even as he was telling it. He was bound to admit that, if ever a story rang false in every sentence, it was this one. "'Pitt, old man,' said his lordship, shaking his head, more in sorrow than in anger. "'It won't do, old top. What's the point of putting up an old yawn like that? Don't you see what I mean is, it's not as if we minded.' Don't I keep telling you we're all pals here? I've often thought what a jolly good fellow old Raffles was, regular sportsman. I don't blame a chappie for doing the gentleman burglar touch. 
seems to me it's a dashed sporting—' Molly turned on him suddenly, cutting short his views on the ethics of gentlemanly theft in a blaze of indignation. "'What do you mean?' she cried. "'Do you think I don't believe every word Jimmy has said?' His lordship jumped. "'Well, don't you know, it seemed to me a bit thin. What I mean is—' He met Molly's eye. "'Oh, well,' he concluded, lamely. Molly turned to Jimmy. "'Jimmy, of course I believe you. I believe every word.' "'Molly!' His lordship looked on, marveling. The thought crossed his mind that he had lost the ideal wife a girl who would believe any old yarn a feller cared to, if it hadn't been for Katie. For a moment he felt almost sad. Jimmy and Molly were looking at each other in silence. From the expression on their faces his lordship gathered that his existence had once more been forgotten. He saw her hold out her hands to Jimmy, and it seemed to him that the time had come to look away. It was embarrassing for a chap. He looked away. The next moment the door opened and closed again, and she had gone. He looked at Jimmy. Jimmy was still apparently unconscious of his presence. His lordship coughed. "'Pit, old man!' "'Hello,' said Jimmy, coming out of his thoughts with a start. "'You still here? By the way,' he eyed Lord Drever curiously, "'I never thought of asking before. What on earth are you doing here? Why were you behind the curtain?' Were you playing hide-and-seek?" His lordship was not one of those who invent circumstantial stories easily on the spur of the moment. He searched rapidly for something that would pass muster, then abandoned the hopeless struggle. After all, why not be frank? He still believed Jimmy to be of the class of the hero of Love the Cracksman. There would be no harm in confiding in him. He was a good fellow, a kindred soul, and would sympathize. "'It's like this,' he said, and, having prefaced his narrative with the sound remark that he had been a bit of an ass, he gave Jimmy a summary of recent events. "'What?' said Jimmy. "'You taught Hargate Piquet?' "'Why, my dear man, he was playing Piquet like a professor when you were in short frocks. He's a wonder at it.' His lordship started. "'How's that?' he said. "'You don't know him, do you?' I met him in New York, at the Strollers' Club. A pal of mine, an actor, this fellow Mifflin I mentioned just now, put him up as a guest. He coined money at Piquet. And there were some pretty useful players in the place, too. I don't wonder you found him a promising pupil. Then, then— Why, dash it, then he's a bally sharper! You're a genius at crisp description, said Jimmy. You've got him summed up to Wright's first shot. I shan't pay him a bally penny. Of course not. If he makes any objection, refer him to me. His lordship's relief was extreme. The more overpowering effects of the elixir had passed away, and he saw now what he had not seen in his more exuberant frame of mind, the cloud of suspicion that must have hung over him when the loss of the banknotes was discovered. He wiped his forehead. "'By Jove,' he said, "'that's something off my mind. By George, I feel like a two-year-old. I say, you're a dashed good sort, Pitt.' "'You flatter me,' said Jimmy. "'I strive to please.' 
I say, Pitt, that yawn you told us just now, the bet and all that, honestly, you don't mean to say that was true, was it? I mean, by Jove, I've got an idea. We live in stirring times. Did you say your actor-pal's name was Mifflin? He broke off suddenly before Jimmy could answer. Great Scott, he whispered. What's that? Good Lord, somebody's coming. He dived behind the curtain like a rabbit. The drapery had only just ceased to shake when the door opened and Sir Thomas Blunt walked in. Chapter 26 Stirring Times for Sir Thomas For a man whose intentions toward the jewels and their owner were so innocent, and even benevolent, Jimmy was in a singularly compromising position. It would have been difficult even under more favorable conditions to have explained to Sir Thomas's satisfaction his presence in the dressing-room. As things stood, it was even harder, for his lordship's last action before seeking cover had been to fling the necklace from him like a burning coal. For the second time in ten minutes it had fallen to the carpet, and it was just as Jimmy straightened himself after picking it up that Sir Thomas got a full view of him. The knight stood in the doorway his face expressing the most lively astonishment. His bulging eyes were fixed upon the necklace in Jimmy's hand. Jimmy could see him struggling to find words to cope with so special a situation, and felt rather sorry for him. Excitement of this kind was bad for a short-necked man of Sir Thomas's type. With kindly tact he endeavored to help his host out. "'Good evening,' he said pleasantly. Sir Thomas stammered. He was gradually nearing speech. "'What, what, what?' he said. "'Out with it,' said Jimmy. "'What?' "'I knew a man once in South Dakota who stammered,' said Jimmy. "'He used to chew dog-biscuit while he was speaking. It cured him, besides being nutritious. Another way is to count ten while you're thinking of what to say, and then get it out quick.' "'You, you blackguard!' Jimmy placed the necklace carefully on the dressing-table. Then he turned to Sir Thomas, with his hands thrust into his pockets. Over the knight's head he could see the folds of the curtain quivering gently, as if stirred by some zephyr. Evidently the drama of the situation was not lost on Hildebrand Spencer, twelfth Earl of Drever. Nor was it lost on Jimmy. This was precisely the sort of situation that appealed to him. He had his plan of action clearly mapped out. He knew that it would be useless to tell the knight the true facts of the case. Sir Thomas was as deficient in simple faith as in Norman blood. Though a Londoner by birth, he had one, at least, of the characteristic traits of the natives of Missouri. To all appearances this was a tight corner, but Jimmy fancied that he saw his way out of it. Meanwhile the situation appealed to him. Curiously enough, it was almost identical with the big scene in Act Three of Love the Cracksman, in which Arthur Mifflin had made such a hit as the debonair burglar. Jimmy proceeded to give his own idea of what the rendering of a debonair burglar should be. Arthur Mifflin had lighted a cigarette and had shot out smoke-rings and repartee alternately. A cigarette would have been a great help here but Jimmy prepared to do his best without properties. "'So, so, it's you, is it?' said Sir Thomas. "'Who told you?' "'Thief! Low thief!' "'Come now!' 
protested Jimmy. Why low? Just because you don't know me over here, why scorn me? How do you know I haven't got a big American reputation? For all you can tell, I may be Boston Billy or Sacramento Sam or someone. Let us preserve the decency of debate. I had my suspicions of you. I had my suspicions from the first, when I heard that my idiot of a nephew had made a casual friend in London. So this is what you were—a thief who— I don't mind personally, interrupted Jimmy, but I hope, if ever you mix with cracksmen, you won't go calling them thieves. They are frightfully sensitive. You see, there's a world of difference between the two branches of the profession, and a good deal of snobbish caste prejudice. Let us suppose that you were an actor-manager. How would you enjoy being called a super? You see the idea, don't you? You'd hurt their feelings. Now, an ordinary thief would probably use violence in a case like this, but violence, except in extreme cases, and I hope this won't be one of them, is contrary, I understand, to cracksman's etiquette. On the other hand, Sir Thomas, candor compels me to add that I have you covered." There was a pipe in the pocket of his coat. He thrust the stem earnestly against the lining. Sir Thomas eyed the protuberance apprehensively, and turned a little pale. Jimmy was scowling ferociously. Arthur Mifflin's scowl in Act Three had been much admired. "'My gun,' said Jimmy, "'is, as you see, in my pocket. I always shoot from the pocket, in spite of the tailor's bills. The little fellow is loaded and cocked. He's pointing straight at your diamond solitaire. That fatal spot. No one has ever been hit in the diamond solitaire and survived. My finger is on the trigger. So I should recommend you not touch that bell you are looking at. There are other reasons why you shouldn't, but those I will go into presently." Sir Thomas's hand wavered. "'Do, if you like, of course,' said Jimmy, agreeably. "'It's your own house. But I shouldn't. I am a dead shot at a yard and a half. You wouldn't believe the number of sitting haystacks I've picked off at that distance. I just can't miss. On second thoughts, I shan't fire to kill you. Let us be humane on this joyful occasion. I shall just smash your knees. Painful, but not fatal." He waggled the pipe suggestively. Sir Thomas blinched. His hand fell to his side. "'Great,' said Jimmy. "'After all, why should you be in a hurry to break up this very pleasant little meeting? I'm sure I'm not. Let us chat. How are the theatricals going? Was the duologue a success? Wait till you see our show. Three of us knew our lines at dress rehearsal." Sir Thomas had backed away from the bell, but the retreat was merely for the convenience of the moment. He understood that it might be injudicious to press the button just then, but he had recovered his composure by this time, and he saw that, ultimately, the game must be his. His face resumed its normal hue. Automatically, his hands began to move toward his coat-tails, his feet to spread themselves. Jimmy noted with a smile these signs of restored complacency. He hoped ere long to upset that complacency somewhat. Sir Thomas addressed himself to making Jimmy's position clear to him. "'How, may I ask,' he said, "'do you propose to leave the castle?' "'Won't you let me have the automobile?' said Jimmy. "'But I guess I shan't be leaving just yet.' 
Sir Thomas laughed shortly. No, he said, no, I fancy not. I am with you there. Great minds, said Jimmy. I shouldn't be surprised if we thought alike on all sorts of subjects. Just think how you came round to my views on ringing bells. But what made you fancy that I intended to leave the castle? I should hardly have supposed that you would be anxious to stay. On the contrary, it's the one place I have been in, in the last two years, that I have felt really satisfied with. Usually I want to move on after a week, but I could stop here forever. I am afraid, Mr. Pitt, by the way, an alias, of course. Jimmy shook his head. I fear not, he said. If I had chosen an alias, it would have been Tresalian or Trevelyan or something. I call Pitt a poor thing in names. I once knew a man called Ronald Chalesmore. Lucky devil. Sir Thomas returned to the point on which he had been about to touch. I am afraid, Mr. Pitt, he said, that you hardly realize your position. No, said Jimmy, interested. I find you in the act of stealing my wife's necklace. Would there be any use in telling you that I was not stealing it, but putting it back? Sir Thomas raised his eyebrows in silence. No, said Jimmy, I was afraid not. You were saying? I find you in the act of stealing my wife's necklace, proceeded Sir Thomas, and because for the moment you succeed in postponing arrest by threatening me with a revolver, an agitated look came into Jimmy's face. "'Great Scott!' he cried. He felt hastily in his pocket. "'Yes,' he said, as I had begun to fear. "'I owe you an apology, Sir Thomas,' he went on with manly dignity, preceding the briar. "'I am entirely to blame. How the mistake arose I cannot imagine, but I find it isn't a revolver at all.' Sir Thomas' cheeks took on a richer tint of purple. He glared dumbly at the pipe. "'In the excitement of the moment, I guess,' began Jimmy. Sir Thomas interrupted. The recollection of his needless panic rankled within him. "'You! You! You! Count ten! You! What you propose to gain by this buffoonery, I am at a loss!' "'How can you say such savage things?' protested Jimmy. "'Not buffoonery! Wit!' Esprit! Flow of soul, such as circulates daily in the best society!" Sir Thomas almost leaped toward the bell. With his finger on it, he turned to deliver a final speech. "'I believe you're insane,' he cried. "'But I'll have no more of it. I have endured this foolery long enough. I'll—' "'Just one moment,' said Jimmy. "'I said just now that there were reasons besides the revolve well, pipe, why you should not ring that bell. One of them is that all the servants will be in their places in the audience, so that there won't be anyone to answer it. But that's not the most convincing reason. Will you listen to one more before getting busy? I see your game. Don't imagine for a moment that you can trick me. Nothing could be further. You fancy you can gain time by talking, and find some way to escape. But I don't want to escape. Don't you realize that in about ten minutes I am due to play an important part in a great drama on the stage? I'll keep you here, I tell you. You'll leave this room. 
said Sir Thomas grandly, over my body. Steeple-chasing in the home, murmured Jimmy. No more dull evenings. But listen, do listen. I won't keep you a minute, and if you want to, push that bell after I'm through, you may push it six inches into the wall, if you like. Well, said Sir Thomas shortly, would you like me to lead gently up to what I want to say, gradually preparing you for the reception of the news, or shall I—the knight took out his watch—I shall give you one minute, he said. Heavens, I must hustle. How many seconds have I got now? If you have anything to say, say it. Very well, then, said Jimmy. It's only this. That necklace is a fraud. The diamonds aren't diamonds at all. They're paste. Chapter 27 A Declaration of Independence If Jimmy had entertained any doubts concerning the effectiveness of this disclosure, they would have vanished at the sight of the other's face. Just as the rich hues of a sunset pale slowly into an almost imperceptible green, so did the purple of Sir Thomas's cheeks become, in stages, first a dull red, then pink, and finally take on a uniform pallor. His mouth hung open. His attitude of righteous defiance had crumpled. Unsuspected creases appeared in his clothes. He had the appearance of one who has been caught in the machinery. Jimmy was a little puzzled. He had expected to check the enemy, to bring him to reason, but not to demolish him in this way. There was something in this which he did not understand. When Spike had handed him the stones, and his trained eye, after a moment's searching examination, had made him suspicious, and when, finally, a simple test had proved his suspicions correct, he was comfortably aware that, though found with the necklace on his person, he had knowledge which, communicated to Sir Thomas, would serve him well. He knew that Lady Julia was not the sort of lady who would bear calmly the announcement that her treasured rope of diamonds was a fraud. He knew enough of her to know that she would demand another necklace, and see that she got it, and that Sir Thomas was not one of those generous and expansive natures which think nothing of an expenditure of twenty thousand pounds. This was the line of thought that had kept him cheerful during what might otherwise have been a trying interview. He was aware from the first that Sir Thomas would not believe in the purity of his motives, but he was convinced that the knight would be satisfied to secure his silence on the subject of the paste necklace at any price. He had looked forward to baffled rage, furious denunciation, and a dozen other expressions of emotion, but certainly not to collapse of this kind. The other had begun to make strange, gurgling noises. "'Mind you,' said Jimmy, "'it's a very good imitation. I'll say that for it. I didn't suspect it till I had the thing in my hands. Looking at it, even quite close, I was taken in for a moment.' Sir Thomas swallowed nervously. "'How did you know?' he muttered. Again Jimmy was surprised. He had expected indignant denials and demands for proof, excited reiteration of the statement that the stones had cost twenty thousand pounds. "'How did I know?' he repeated. "'If you mean what first made me suspect, I couldn't tell you. It might have been one of a score of things. 
A jeweler can't say exactly how he gets on the track of fake stones. He can feel them. He can almost smell them. I worked with a jeweler once. That's how I got my knowledge of jewels. But if you mean, can I prove what I say about this necklace, that's easy. There's no deception. It's simple. See here. These stones are supposed to be diamonds. Well, the diamond is the hardest stone in existence. Nothing will scratch it. Now I've got a little ruby out of a college pin, which I know is genuine. By rights, then, that ruby ought not to have scratched these stones. You follow that? But it did. It scratched two of them, the only two I tried. If you like, I can continue the experiment, but there's no need. I can tell you right now what these stones are. I said they were paste, but that wasn't quite accurate. There is stuff called white jargoon. It's a stuff that's very easily faked. You work it with the flame of a blowpipe. You don't want a full description, I suppose? Anyway, what happens is that the blowpipe sets it up like a tonic, gives it increased specific gravity and a healthy complexion and all sorts of great things of that kind. Two minutes in the flame of a blowpipe is like a week at the seashore to a bit of white jargoon. Are you satisfied? If it comes to that, I guess you can hardly be expected to be. Convinced is a better word. Are you convinced, or do you hanker after tests like polarized light and refracting liquids?" Sir Thomas had staggered to a chair. "'So that's how you knew,' he said. "'That was,' began Jimmy, when a sudden suspicion flashed across his mind. He scrutinized Sir Thomas' pallid face keenly. "'Did you know?' he asked. He wondered that the possibility had not occurred to him earlier. This would account for much that had puzzled him in the other's reception of the news. He had supposed, vaguely, without troubling to go far into the probabilities of such a thing, that the necklace which Spike had brought to him had been substituted for the genuine diamonds by a thief. Such things happened frequently, he knew. But, remembering what Molly had told him of the care which Sir Thomas took of this particular necklace, and the frequency with which Lady Julia wore it, he did not see how such a substitution could have been effected. There had been no chance of anybody's obtaining access to these stones for the necessary length of time. "'By George! I believe you did!' he cried. "'You must have! So that's how it happened, is it?' I don't wonder it was a shock when I said I knew about the necklace. Mr. Pitt. Well? I have something to say to you. I'm listening. Sir Thomas tried to rally. There was a touch of the old pomposity in his manner when he spoke. Mr. Pitt, I find you in an unpleasant position. Jimmy interrupted. Don't you worry about my unpleasant position, he said. Fix your attention exclusively upon your own. Let us be frank with one another. You're in the cart. What do you propose to do about it?" Sir Thomas rallied again, with the desperation of one fighting a lost cause. "'I do not understand you,' he began. "'No,' said Jimmy. "'I'll try and make my meaning clear. Correct me from time to time if I am wrong.' The way I size the thing up is as follows. When you married Lady Julia, 
I gather that it was, so to speak, up to you to some extent. People knew you were a millionaire, and they expect something special in the way of gifts from the bridegroom to the bride. Now you, being of a prudent and economical nature, began to wonder if there wasn't some way of getting a reputation for lavishness without actually unbelting to any great extent. Am I right?" Sir Thomas did not answer. "'I am,' said Jimmy. "'Well, it occurred to you, naturally enough, that a properly selected gift of jewellery might work the trick. It only needed a little nerve. When you give a present of diamonds to a lady, she is not likely to call for polarized light or refracting liquids and the rest of the circus. In ninety-nine cases out of a hundred she will take the things on trust. Very well. You trot it off to a jeweler, and put the thing to him confidentially. I guess you suggested paste. But, being a wily person, he pointed out that paste has a habit of not wearing well. It is pretty enough when it's new, but quite a small amount of ordinary wear and tear destroys the polish of the surface and the sharpness of the cutting. It gets scratched easily. Having heard this, and reflecting that Lady Julia was not likely to keep the necklace under a glass case, you rejected paste as too risky. The genial jeweller then suggested white jargoon, mentioning, as I have done, that, after an application or so of the blowpipe, its own mother wouldn't know it. If he was a bit of an antiquary, he probably added that, in the eighteenth century, jargoon stones were supposed to be actually an inferior sort of diamond. What could be more suitable? Make it jargoon, dear heart, you cried joyfully, and all was well. Am I right? I notice that you have not corrected me so far." Whether or not Sir Thomas would have replied in the affirmative is uncertain. He was opening his mouth to speak when the curtain at the end of the room heaved, and Lord Drever burst out like a cannonball in tweeds. The apparition effectually checked any speech that Sir Thomas might have been intending to make. Lying back in his chair, he goggled silently at the new arrival. Even Jimmy, though knowing that his lordship had been in hiding, was taken aback. His attention had become so concentrated on his duel with the knight that he had almost forgotten that they had an audience. His lordship broke the silence. "'Great Scott!' he cried. Neither Jimmy nor Sir Thomas seemed to consider the observation unsound or inadequate. They permitted it to pass without comment. "'You old scoundrel!' added his lordship, addressing Sir Thomas. "'And you're the man who called me a Welsha!' There were signs of a flicker of spirit in the knight's prominent eyes, but they died away. He made no reply. "'Great Scott!' moaned his lordship, in a fervour of self-pity. "'Here have I been all these years, letting you give me Hades in every shape and form, when all the while—my goodness! if I'd only known earlier!" He turned to Jimmy. "'Pit, old man,' he said warmly, "'I—dash it, I don't know what to say. If it hadn't been for you—I always did like Americans, I always thought it belly rot that that fuss happened in—in whenever it was—if it hadn't been for fellows like you,' he continued, addressing Sir Thomas once more, "'there wouldn't have been any of that frightful Declaration of Independence business would there, pit old man?" These were deep problems, too spacious for casual examination. 
Jimmy shrugged his shoulders. "'Well, I guess Sir Thomas might not have got along with George Washington, anyway,' he said. "'Of course not. Well,' Spenny moved toward the door, "'I'm off downstairs to see what Aunt Julia has to say about it all.' A shudder, as if from some electric shock, shook Sir Thomas. He leaped to his feet. "'Spencer!' he cried. "'I forbid you to say a word to your aunt!' "'Oh,' said his lordship, "'you do, do you?' Sir Thomas shivered. "'She would never let me hear the last of it.' "'I bet she wouldn't. I'll go and see. Stop!' "'Well?' Sir Thomas dabbed at his forehead with his handkerchief. He dared not face the vision of Lady Julia in possession of the truth. At one time, the fear lest she might discover the harmless little deception he had practiced had kept him awake at night, but gradually, as the days went by, and the excellence of the imitation stones had continued to impose upon her and upon everyone else who saw them, the fear had diminished. But it had always been at the back of his mind. Even in her calmer moments his wife was a source of mild terror to him. His imagination reeled at the thought of what depths of aristocratic scorn and indignation she would plumb in a case like this. Spencer, he said, I insist that you shall not inform your aunt of this. What? You want me to keep my mouth shut? You want me to become an accomplice in this beastly, low-down deception? I like that. The point, said Jimmy, is well taken. Noblesse oblige and all that sort of thing. The blood of the Dreavers boils furiously at the idea. Listen, you can hear it sizzling. Lord Dreaver moved a step nearer to the door. Stop! cried Sir Thomas again. Spencer! Well? Spencer, my boy, it occurs to me that perhaps I have not always treated you very well. Perhaps? Not always? Great Scott! I'll have a fiver each way on both those. Considering you've treated me like a frightful kid practically ever since you've known me, I call that pretty rich. Why, what about this very night when I asked you for a few pounds? It was only the thought that you had been gambling. Gambling? How about palming off faked diamonds on Aunt Julia for a gamble? A game of skill, surely, murmured Jimmy. I have been thinking the matter over, said Sir Thomas, and, if you really need them, was it not fifty pounds? It was twenty, said his lordship, and I don't need it. Keep it. You'll want all you can say for a new necklace. His fingers closed on the door-handle. Spencer, stop! Well? We must talk this over. We must not be hasty. Sir Thomas passed the handkerchief over his forehead. "'In the past, perhaps,' he resumed, "'our relations have not been quite—the fault was mine. I have always endeavoured to do my duty. It is a difficult task to look after a young man of your age.' His lordship's sense of his grievance made him eloquent. "'Dash it all!' he cried. "'That's just what I jolly well complain of. Who the dickens wanted you to look after me?' Hang it, you've kept your eye on me all these years like a frightful policeman. You cut off my allowance right in the middle of my time at college, just when I needed it most, and I had to come and beg for money whenever I wanted to buy a cigarette. 
I looked a fearful ass, I can tell you. Men who knew me used to be dashed funny about it. I'm sick of the whole bally business. You've given me a jolly thin time all this while, and now I'm going to get a bit of my own back. Wouldn't you, Pitt, old man?" Jimmy, thus suddenly appealed to, admitted that, in his lordship's place, he might have experienced a momentary temptation to do something of the kind. "'Of course,' said his lordship, "'any fellow would.' "'But, Spencer, let me—' "'You've soured my life,' said his lordship, frowning a tense, Byronic frown. "'That's what you've done, soured my whole bally life. I've had a rotten time. I've had to go about touching my friends for money to keep me going. Why, I owe you a fiver, don't I, Pitt, old man?' It was a tenor, to be finickingly accurate about details, but Jimmy did not say so. He concluded, rightly, that the memory of the original five pounds which he had lent Lord Drever at the Savoy Hotel had faded from the other's mind. "'Don't mention it,' he said. "'But I do mention it!' protested his lordship, shrilly. "'It just proves what I say. If I had had a decent allowance, it wouldn't have happened. And you wouldn't give me enough to set me going in the diplomatic service. There's another thing. Why wouldn't you do that?' Sir Thomas pulled himself together. "'I hardly thought you qualified, my dear boy.' His lordship did not actually foam at the mouth, but he looked as if he might do so at any moment. Excitement and the memory of his wrongs, lubricated, as it were, by the champagne he had consumed both at and after dinner, had produced in him a frame of mind far removed from the normal. His manners no longer had that repose which stamps the cast of Ver de Ver. He waved his hands. "'I know! I know!' he shouted. "'I know you didn't! You thought me a fearful fool! I tell you, I'm sick of it!' and always trying to make me marry money. Dashed humiliating! If she hadn't been a jolly sensible girl, you'd have spoiled Miss McKechn's life as well as mine. You came very near it. I tell you, I've had enough of it. I'm in love. I'm in love with the rippingest girl in England. You've seen her pit, old top. Isn't she a ripper?" Jimmy stamped the absent lady with the seal of his approval. I tell you, if she'll have me, I'm going to marry her." The dismay written on every inch of Sir Thomas's countenance became intensified at these terrific words. Great as had been his contempt for the actual holder of the title, considered simply as a young man, he had always been filled with a supreme respect for the Drever name. "'But, Spencer!' he almost howled. "'Consider your position! You cannot!' "'Can't I, by Jove! If she'll have me—' and damn my position! What's my position got to do with it? Katie's the daughter of a general, if it comes to that. Her brother was at college with me. If I'd had a penny to call my own, I'd have asked her to marry me ages ago. Don't you worry about my position!' Sir Thomas croaked feebly. "'Now look here,' said his lordship, with determination. "'Here's the whole thing in a jolly old nutshell.' If you want me to forget about this little flutter and the fake diamonds of yours, you've got to pull up your socks and start in to do things. You've got to get me attached to some embassy for a beginning. It won't be difficult. There's dozens of old boys in London who knew the governor when he was alive who'll jump at the chance of doing me a good turn. 
I know I'm a bit of an ass in some ways, but that's expected of you in the diplomatic service. They only want you to wear evening clothes as if you were used to them, and be a bit of a flyer dancing, and I can fill the bill all right as far as that goes. And you've got to give your jolly old blessing to Katie and me, if she'll have me. That's about all I can think of for the moment. How do we go? Are you on?" "'It's preposterous,' began Sir Thomas. Lord Drever gave the door-handle a rattle. "'It's a hold-up, all right,' said Jimmy soothingly. I don't want to butt in on a family conclave, but my advice, if asked, would be to unbelt before the shooting begins. You've got something worse than a pipe pointing at you now. As regards my position in the business, don't worry. My silence is presented gratis. Give me a loving smile, and my lips are sealed." Sir Thomas turned on the speaker. "'As for you!' he cried. "'Never mind about Pitt,' said his lordship. He's a dashed good fellow, Pitt. I wish there were more like him. And he wasn't pinching the stuff, either. If you had only listened when he tried to tell you, you mightn't be in such a frightful hole. He was putting the things back, as he said. I know all about it. Well, what's the answer?" For a moment Sir Thomas seemed on the point of refusal. But just as he was about to speak, his lordship opened the door, and at the movement he collapsed again. "'I will!' he cried. "'I will!' "'Good,' said his lordship, with satisfaction. "'That's a bargain. Coming downstairs, Pitt, old man. We shall be wanted on the stage in about half a minute.' "'As an antidote to stage fright,' said Jimmy, as they went along the corridor, "'little discussions of that kind may be highly recommended. I shouldn't mind betting that you feel fit for anything.' "'I feel like a two-year-old.' assented his lordship enthusiastically. I've forgotten all my part, but I don't care. I'll just go down and talk to them. That, said Jimmy, is the right spirit. Chartres will get heart disease, but it's the right spirit. A little more of that sort of thing, and amateur theatricals would be worth listening to. Step lively, Roscius. The stage waits. End of Part 9